Almost a decade ago, I was preaching at a series of meetings outside of Hyderabad in India, a place for which I have great affection. And I was driving one evening to the place of meeting. There were over 15,000 people who had gathered at night for these meetings. And as we traveled through a little town, I saw a parade. And at the head of the parade were two men carrying a box on their shoulder. And on the box, there were flowers. And people were jubilant and dancing behind this procession with the box. And so I turned to one of the men in the vehicle where I was, and I asked, what are they doing? And he said to me, they are carrying their God. I wonder this evening, do you carry your God or does your God carry you? It is a question I think that is worth asking because of the text that was read for us from Isaiah chapter 46. The prophet Isaiah, as we have said, ministered during the latter part of the 8th century, about 740 B.C. to 700. He was a contemporary of the prophets, Amos, Hosea, and Micah. And in this book that divides into two parts, chapters 1 to 39, indeed concerns the unfaithfulness of the nation. They had not persevered in faith They had not kept the covenant of God. In fact, they perverted the scales of justice. They gave, that is the judges, favorable verdict to the wealthy who could bribe them. And they indeed ignore the rights of the innocent. And the Lord was displeased. And so in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the prophet announces that God will judge his people in the form of an exile. But in chapter 40 to 66, there is a distinct shift in mood. It is what is known in many circles as the book of comfort. Because the Lord moves to comfort Israel. That even though they would go into exile, the Lord promised not to destroy them, but to bring them back to the land. He would restore them to Zion. And even though they were a depressed people and had little to celebrate, having been reduced to a rubble, Jerusalem was broken down, the temple was desecrated, the population was exiled, yet the Lord would bring them back. It is in this section, this book of comfort, that we have chapter 46. In fact, you may ask, how does this chapter play in the overall message of hope that is given to Israel? Well, in chapter 46, the Lord is reminding Israel that he will restore the remnant. And one of the things he's going to do, he's going to show that the idols of Babylon would not be able to hinder the Lord from restoring them to the land. You must recognize that in those days when wars were fought and nations were defeated, victories were won, people considered the wars to be fought by the gods. And so if one army fought against another army and won, they would believe that their God had won the victory and that the other nations, their God had lost. 
the battle. For the Lord in chapter 46 makes it clear that the idols of Babylon were inadequate and that they would not be able to save. In fact, chapter 47 contains a poem which explains Babylon's eventual downfall. But what we want to do is to answer this question. Do you carry your God or does your God carry you? In order to see that and answer that question, we need to note then in our passage the first division, Isaiah 46, verses 1 to 2, deals with the inadequacy of Babylon's idols. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, or the things that were carried were heavily were heavy or loaded, a burden to the beast. They stoop, that is, the beast, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. What the prophet does is that he launches a scathing attack on the idols of Babylon. Notice that he refers to these as idols and not gods, because there is a polemic in the book of Isaiah, in which the writer portrays the gods of Babylon as idols, that is, rather carved wood, images covered with gold. They are not real entities. So that when the writer of Isaiah, when the prophet Isaiah describes idols, on one hand, they are non-entities. But the scriptures will teach us that idols, though they themselves are nothing, the reality that they represent is demonic in nature. And so those who worship idols, they worship demons who inspire them. And you see this in the Old Testament, for instance, in the book of Leviticus 17. They shall not offer their sacrifices to demons. Well, they were worshiping idols, but, the, but Moses says they shall not offer their sacrifices to demons, after whom they have played the harlot. And you see the same thing in other passages in Deuteronomy 31. They sacrificed to demons and not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods and new arrivals that your father fathers did not fear. And so Paul in the New Testament could say that the things that the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons in 1 Corinthians 10.20. So on one hand, we are to note that idols are non-entities. But the things that motivate them is satanic, is demonic. Now, he begins chapter 46 with two well-known Babylonian gods or idols. Bel bows down. Bel, the first god, simply means Lord. It is the same god that is referred to in the Canaanite religion as Baal. This is Bel and Baal are one and the same. It is also important to know that Bel or Baal was synonymous with the Babylonian god Marduk. And Marduk was the leading deity in the Babylonian pantheon. In the list of gods, Bel or Marduk was the chief god. There is a Babylonian document called the Enuma Elish, which goes back to the second millennium. Some 2,000 2, years before Christ came into the world. And in this Babylonian document, 
the Enuma Elish, it describes how Bel or Marduk became the chief god in that he fought a battle against the dragon Tiamat and by this defeating him he became the head of the Babylonian pantheon. And so he names Bel bows down and Nebo stoops. The second god is Nebo or Nabu and he appears in Babylonian literature as a son of Marduk. In fact, he was the patron god, the leading god of the neighboring city of Borisipa, which was seven miles away from Babylon. He was the most important deity that was invited to attend his father Marduk in the festivities, the New Year's festivities in Babylon. In other words, they would bring Nebo from this neighboring village to Babylon when the new year came around and there were festivities. And these gods would be paraded up and down the street. Now Nebo was the god of writing, the god of science, the god who held the stone or the tablet of destiny so that he was the god who would predict what would happen in the new year. It is rather ironic then that this god, Nebo, who apparently knew the future, could not tell the Babylonians that they were going to be taken captive by the Medes and Persians. He couldn't see that. I would suggest to you that he saw nothing. The prophet ridicules these idols. He says, Bel bows down and Nebo stoops. Well, how, how do idols stoop? And how do idols bow down? It is precisely because these idols are on beasts, on cattle. They've loaded these idols. And, and by the way, you know, when you think of these Babylonian gods, like Bel and Nebo, the, the picture you see in uh, hieroglyphics is not like a little bald-headed Buddha that is nice and cute and you have on a little mantelpiece. These are massive structures, taller than most of us. And so when you load these these, these idols onto animals, the animals struggle under this massive weight. And because the animals are bowed down, the idols are said to bow down because the animals cannot bear up under these burdens. And so he says, these are a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. These idols are carried, and what the prophet sees is not then the normal New Year's festivities when these animals are carried up and down the street. Rather, he sees these, these burdens, these gods, these idols loaded onto beasts that are burdened down, and they are being carried away into captivity. And this then is a depiction of the uselessness, the impotency of idols. These are carried as spoils destined for exile. And what Isaiah then sees is not then the powerful idols of Babylon, but powerless idols, powerless to save. They cannot save themselves, and thus they cannot save others. These idols cannot carry their people. They must be carried. And hence the prophet intimates that Israel ought not to fear these idols 
for they carry no one, but they themselves are carried. So in verses 1 to 2, we see the first division of the chapter, the impotency of Babylon's idols. But in verses 3 to 4, we see the potency of Israel's God. You would note then that the prophet writes, Listen to me, speaking on, the beh- on behalf of the Lord. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth or from the womb, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made you, and I will bear you. Even I will carry you and will deliver you. You see the difference. Whereas the idols of the nations and of Babylon, they are being carried because they are impotent and useless. God is the one who now says he's the one who carries his people. They are invited to heed, to hear the word of the Lord. They are to, as one writer says, to receive them, to believe them, and to live by them. And what does the Lord wish them to hear? Simply this, that contrary to idols that must be carried by packed animals and people, the Lord, their God, is the one who carries them. You've got to look at verses 3 and 4. You've got to see the repetition on the term carry. In fact, in verses 3 and 4, there are five references to carry, God carrying his people. He uses three different terms in the Hebrew. If you start in verse 3, listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld, there is the first term to carry. That term translated upheld is the same term to mean to bear or those who are born. And it's yamas. It means to carry. The next term for carry we find is who have been carried from the womb is nasa to lift up. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who lifted up our burdens. He, it means he carried them. And so here the Lord is the one who upholds or bears us from birth. He's the one who carries us from the womb. In verse 4, again he says, I am he and even to Great hairs, I will carry you. And so the Lord uses the term sabal as to carry a heavy load. And verse 4 continues the stress that he will carry them even to old age. And then he begins to repeat the term nasa and sabal. But clearly then, simply by the repetition of the term carry, God carries his people. He upholds them. He leads them on. From the womb to old age is to be seen as a literary device, a merism, where two contrasting terms are used to suggest totality. If we talk about heaven and earth, what we mean by that is that everything, if we say God controls heaven and earth, what it means then by these two contrasting terms, heaven and earth, that God controls the entire universe, everything between them. And so God is the one who carries his people from the womb, even to old age. He's the one who leads them. Perhaps if there is any example of God carrying, caring for, and leading his people, it is 
indeed the story of Israel in the wilderness. Because for 40 years, the Lord carried Israel. In other words, he sustained them. He bore them on and carried them to their ultimate destination. In Deuteronomy 1, verse 31, Moses reminded Israel, The Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. It is a lovely picture of a father carrying his infant son in all the tenderness and love that a father has for a child. If Israel's God then is greater than the Babylonian idols because he carries his people, he sustains them, he leads them to his goal and purpose for them, how did they end up in the exile? That's a question that they have to ask. Here God is saying that he is not like the idols who must be carried, but he's the one who does the carrying. He's a God of potency. The gods are impotent, but God is a God of potency. How did they end up in, in, in exile? Time and time again, the prophet points out that it was not because God was impotent so that Israel then went into exile. It was precisely because they had sinned that it is God who had withdrawn from Israel because of their sins. And the exile then becomes God's act of discipline upon a nation. You know, you see something about God that is absolutely fair. Because on one hand, the Canaanites and the other nations who were in the land of Israel, they disobeyed God committed many sins, even offered up their children as sacrifice, and the land vomited them out. God thrust them out. And when Israel came into the land and did their own thing, followed the gods of the nations and lived in idolatry, what happened to them? They were also vomited out of the land. God also thrust them out. See, God is a God of justice. Just because we are Christians and just because we are followers of God, we cannot live like the world without having the discipline of God. If unbelievers sin against God and God discipline them, then if Christians do the same, we must not think we will escape God's discipline. And the same thing that happened to Israel. So it was not because God lacked any power, but because he willed to discipline them in the exile. Nevertheless, they must know that the God of glory, the God of heaven, is a God of almighty strength who lifts them up who sustains them and carries them. And the picture of that, of course, terminates in the land of Canaan. Because for 40 years, God was with them in the wilderness. He gave them water. He gave them food, miraculously. And he carried them into the land. And so we see then, first of all, the impotency of the Babylonian gods. And in verses 3 to 4, we see the potency of Israel's God. But in verses 5 to 11, we see something of the incomparability of Israel's God. That's the third division in the passage. You know that because of the language used, that God is incomparable. Here the Lord speaks. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith. And he makes it into a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place. And it stands. And from its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, it cannot answer. Nor save him out of his trouble. 
Remember this and show yourself men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. We see the incomparability of God now in verses 5 to 11. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed I have spoken it. And I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and it also will, and I also will do it. Here we see God is incomparable. And so the rhetorical question is placed before then. To whom will you liken me? After the contrast between the idols of Babylon and the Lord of glory, the Lord underscored that he is incomparable by nature. To whom will you liken me? And make me equal and compare me that we should be alike. And of course, the intended and expected response is that God is like none other in the universe, or none other in the universe is like God, that he's incomparable. This answer, of course, is no, there is none like the Lord. And so the writer says, well, let's look at a supposed competitor to God. Let's look at idols. Can we suppose that idols can be compared to God? And so, again, there is a scathing criticism of idols. Verse 6. He talks about idols as man-made objects. And he he goes through a rather elaborate process of describing how idols are constructed. They lavish gold on the bag and and weigh silver on the scale. What does he say? He said, well, if they're going to be idols, you've got to get somebody who has gold. And they've got to weigh out the gold. They can't just pour out gold without concern because if they do so, they'll be left in poverty. So they have to measure out just the right amount of gold and just the right amount of silver. I mean, gold is precious. Silver is precious. You can't just toss it in an idol. And when they have done that, having measured out how much gold and silver they need, they must look around for a goldsmith. Somebody who understands the process of smelting. Somebody who knows how to heat a furnace and to melt gold and silver and to use that melted gold to turn it into an idol. That's the second step in producing an idol. And when they have done that, they then, having weighed out the gold and weighed out the silver, they have made themselves a god. And then they bow down before this God. They carry this God on their shoulders. And they put it in the place of worship. But this God cannot move. Where it's placed, there it must stay. If one cries out to it and come and say, O Baal, O Baal, help me. This God cannot respond. Because it is dead, is an idol, nor can it save in trouble. And so idols are lifeless. So he's going to now show why God is incomparable, why the, the gods of the nations can never be compared to the God of glory. And the first sign that God is incomparable is that God is a living God. And you notice how he puts this in our passage. 
Remember this and show yourself to me then. Recall to mind, all oh, you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. In verse 3, he tells them to listen. Now he tells them to remember and to show themselves men. In other words, in literally to be firm, that is to be assured. What should they hear? What should they remember? They should remember the former things of old. And the former things of old include God's powerful act of creation. That this creation did not originate by itself. We know that, at least in our experience, everything must have a cause. And you can't have an infinite regression of causes. That this creation came by the powerful word of God. That a creation that is ordered and intelligible is brought by an intelligible God. Remember the former things of old. Remember the creation, and not only the creation that speaks of God, they are to remember God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Remember what God has done. Isaiah says that this God is incomparable. The one who says, remember the former things of old, says, I am God right now, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Throughout this book, of Isaiah, the prophet will point to God as incomparable. He says the same thing in Isaiah 43, 11, I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no other Savior. In Isaiah 45, verse 6, there is none beside me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Even the prophet Jeremiah could cry out, and there is no other God beside me, a great God and a Savior. There is none beside me, Isaiah 45, 21. But Jeremiah says the same thing in chapter 10, verse 6. And your name is great in might. The Lord has made it plain. You are great. And there is none like you, he says in Jeremiah 10, verse 6. So the Lord makes it plain that he is incomparable because he is God. And when it says, I am God, or even I am the Lord, it means that God is the living God. The, the term Yahweh means I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. He is the ever-living God. And that which separates God from all other idols is that they are dead and they are lifeless, but God is forever living. I am God. I am living. God does not grow old with the centuries. He remains the same. He does not diminish in his memory or in his power. He remains forever the almighty God. But that which makes God incomparable is not only that he is always a living God, but that he is the God who predicts the future. You see this in verse 10. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I shall do all my pleasure. You see, God is the God who knows the future. In fact, this is one of the great comparisons that is made in the Old Testament between gods and idols. That the gods of the nations do not know the future. 
I, I like New Year's. Uh, uh, New Year's, you know, to, to hear the prognostication for the future. What's going to happen on the stock market? What kind of year we're going to have? You know, all these experts, and by the way, I, I am not now casting aspersions on experts. I do believe there are experts. But when it comes to the future, there is no such thing as an expert. Everything is an educated guest. We really don't know. We don't know what will happen this year. In fact, we don't know what will happen in another moment. Last Saturday, I was sitting in a living room talking to an elderly couple. And the husband was sitting there on the couch and he was talking to me about lessons he learned from his father many years ago. And we had a few jokes together laughed together and I went home afterwards and the next day on Sunday midday I got a call that he he was dead I suggest to you that he did not know when we sat together I did not know but neither did he know that that was the last time he would see me or I would see him you see God is a God who knows the future and God calls the future before it comes. You see, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it I will also do it. The Lord shows that he's incomparable because he's able to call the future. He's able to foresee the Babylonian exile. More than that, he's able to foresee that there will be a bird of prey from the east. What does that refer to, the bird of, of prey from the east? Well, it refers to Cyrus the Great, the Persian king. And in chapter 44, the Lord predicted that there would come this man, Cyrus. In fact, the Bible names him even before he's born. In chapter 44, 28, we read, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Over a hundred and fifty years before this man Cyrus came into history, the Lord predicted that this man would come and he would indeed cause the Israelites to return to their land and he would cause the temple to be rebuilt. Only God could have seen a hundred and fifty years into the future. And the reason God can see the future is because God controls the future. I will do all my pleasure. It is he who determines what will happen. It is he who determines that he will bring this man, Cyrus. Listen, Cyrus had no reason, no rational reason to send back a slave people to their land to build a temple. It is God who brought him from the east who caused him to sweep away the Babylonians 
It is God who caused him to have mercy upon the Israelites and to send them back. And to send them with protection. And to give them money and material to rebuild the temple. And he, he, he proclaimed this man 150 years. You see, this is not the only prophecy in the Bible. One of the reasons why I believe the Bible is because of the prophecies of the Bible. They're ever true. So God is a God who is incomparable because he sees the future and he controls the future. He does what he pleases. God is the one who stands behind his word and has the power to fulfill his words. The end of this chapter, chapter 46, ends with a promise of salvation. And so the Lord speaks to Israel, listen to me, you stubborn-hearted. You who are far from righteousness, I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. In other words, I'm going to restore you, even though you are hard-hearted. And I will place salvation in Zion. I will bring you back to your nation. And I will plant you in that land. And I will make Israel my glory. I believe that when you read a passage like this, it calls us first and foremost to two things. First, we are to beware of impotent idols. Do you carry your gods? Or does your God carry you? We may think that idols today belong to uneducated, superstitious, pre-modern people. But we are all makers and manufacturers of idols. Our heart, one ancient writer reminded us, are idol factories churning out new idols every day. And when I speak of idols, I mean that an idol is anything that takes the place of God in our lives. Idols come in several different forms. First, there are those intangible idols, such as ideologies. Today we prize our belief systems. We exhibit faith in the theory of evolution. We worship nationalism and scientism. We are committed to these idols, idols of the mind. Do you carry your gods or do they carry you? Does your God carry you? There are idols that are more tangible. We don't need to look very far to see that people are worshipping the God of mammon. Money makes the world go round. How many people want to win a lot of 649? Never to work again. We have new shrines, new temples. They are on Bay Street and on Wall Street. That's where men and women are worshipping. We worship the shrine of materialism, believing that amassing more and more will make us happy and more secure. We worship Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. We worship technology. We believe newer is always better. We worship pleasure. Just take a look at our commitment, the commitment of our generation to entertainment. 
Look at the time invested in taking selfies. Yeah, I, I didn't even know what that was until, I mean, I was a bit confused. I, I, I don't know where I was. I was, <laughs> I saw these people with this telescope thing in front of them. I thought, what are they doing? And then they went on the, the beach to take a, a dip, and the guy went under the water with this. And I said, what, are, what? I was actually confused until I realized that they were, I think one of my children explained to me that they were taking pictures of themselves. I find that, I find that troubling, you know, because we spend a lot of time in the mornings looking at ourselves in the mirror. And to think that we have to go to take more selfies of ourselves, I think that that is, that is problematic. A lot of time spent on Snapchat and WhatsApp and Xbox and Facebook and YouTube. A lot of time spent in amusement and games. Can you imagine if we're spending that time with God or how far ahead we would be? We have our gods and our idols. And the problem with our idols is that we carry them at great cost. They are burdens. And they bear us down. You see, idols always demand sacrifice. If you have an idol, it demands sacrifice. You must give up healthy family relationship to feed your idols. You must give up virtue and purity and honesty and truth to feed your idols. You must give up a right relationship with God to sustain your idols. Idols demand sacrifice. They are heavy to bear. They bear us down. And the reality is this. No matter how much we invest in our idols, these God substitutes will never satisfy. They can never carry us. They cannot carry us through the trying times of life. They cannot help us when we are sick and when we are dying. They cannot carry us into the arms of Jesus. You see, we need a God that we do not have to carry, but a God who will carry us. And what we have in God is a God who does exactly that. He carries us through the tempest and through the rain. He carries us in the hard times and in the good times. A God who is strong enough to bear us up when we are burdened down. That's the God that we need. A God who loves us and has the power to help us. You see, my friends, do you carry your God or does your God carry you? We have the Lord Jesus Christ who carried us because he carried away our sins on the cross. And he's carrying us on, as I mentioned this morning, to glory. And so, my friends, we must beware of idols because they lead us to ruin. They cannot carry us. We must carry them. And we do so at great cost to our eternal souls. But we must also remember the incomparable God. We are called to listen and to remember him. We must not ignore God or pretend that he's not there. We are sustained by him. The very life and breath we have, we have received from him. That we live only by the permission of God. If God does not call us from sleep every morning, we sleep the sleep of death. But this is the God who carries us. And he's incomparable because he's living. 
He's incomparable because he's in control of the future. That everything that occurs in this life occurs by the will and the pleasure of our God. That indeed the world and the future is in his hand. And that means we must trust him. We do not know what tomorrow brings. And we do not know what we will face in a year's time. But what, one thing we do know, that whatever comes, life or death, all things are under the purview and control of our sovereign God who carries us. That's the God we need. A God who cannot be surprised. A God who controls all things, including the future. And so I commend you to this God. A God that you don't have to carry, but a God who will carry you. And a God who controls the future and will work it for your good and for his glory. May he bless you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.